Hello and welcome to the Carolina Snowflakes podcast, where two Southerners come to terms with their liberal snowflake tendencies. We're your hosts. I'm Amanda. And I'm Jason. And we are here with episode number 17 of the Carolina Snowflakes podcast. This one's called The Grossest House in North Carolina. Mm. And uh, it's a pretty provocative title. I like it. Kind of clickbaity. Yeah, it's a little bit clickbaity. Well, we did that to you guys on purpose. But so, also not really. <laughs> yeah, it's not because we're, we're, we'll justify it, I believe. We will. Stick around. So I've seen some pretty gross houses in my time. The grossest house I've ever been in was back in my youth. Um, we'll say uh, a man named Flapjack owned it just for the... <laughs> Flapjack? Yeah, for the sake of anonymity, we'll say it was Flapjack. Okay. And, um, <laughs> oh man, this house was crazy. So we would party there all the time. You know, there's girls. That was part of the reason I went. We could drink and there was and there was girls. But it was really gross. I mean, like, really gross. The kitchen had no cabinets and, and no, no dishes or anything that you could cook food with. Instead, there was speakers in the cabinets. <laughs> um... There was a big box, I'd say like a refrigerator box size almost, halfway filled with broken glass. It was just in the middle of the kitchen. Where did the for glass years. come from? I have no idea. It was we always laughed about it being like a trap. Like, but I feel like if you fell in it, it would be horrible, like a saw movie or something. Like you it would fall be fall and get cut up by all the broken glass in this giant box. Yeah, and we that no one knows why it's there. Yeah, part of the <laughs> I, I think it was like we considered it like drunk traps. Like to, if you're too noob to like handle your liquor and you fall in there, then you deserve what you get. I guess was the logic. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. There, maybe they were hoping it would be entertaining. Well, yeah, and it, like I said, <laughs> we considered it like a test. It was like, if you could pass getting drunk in this house, then you could handle yourself. That was kind of the thing. Oh. Another example of that would be, there was a chair, uh, a specific reclining chair, and people that went there knew you never sit in that chair, and you could always tell somebody being there for the first time because they would sit down in that chair, and inevitably someone would go, sitting in Josh's piss chair. Uh. And then you, you, that person would stand up. And be like, what? And be like, excuse me? And you'd be like, yeah, this guy, Josh, he comes over here pretty often. And when he gets drunk, he passes out in that chair inevitably and pisses himself. And that's how we know you have never been here before. That's disgusting. Yeah. But when you got a lot of people coming in and out, you set up these little traps, I think was... Little traps or tests. Little tests to make sure uh -huh. to see if you were cool. That... That's pretty gross. Yeah, and so when they moved in, they found a gigantic, like, eight-foot-tall stack of, like, old porn magazines. Okay. And they had carefully, very carefully, I assume under the influence of some kind of drug, cut out all this porn and very carefully using packing tape covered the entire bathroom with it. I'm talking the entire bathroom. Like, floor... Everything. Ceiling. Everything. Floors, ceilings, mirror. There was no mirror anymore. It was just porn. Uh, oh. the, uh, the light switch covers, everything was covered in porn. There was only one thing that wasn't porn, and it was a picture of Lars Ulrich sitting on the toilet, and it was directly across from you if you sat down. On the toilet. S on the toilet. So <laughs> when girls were there, they would sit down to pee, and right in front of them is Lars Ulrich. So you mean, wait, hold on. So you mean yes. to tell me that girls went to this yes. house? yes. It was a party house. It was uh, we would have mu music. They would play drums and like have people play instruments in the living room. It was this like, wasn't against their will. No, no, <laughs> no. Okay. And um, yeah, there was it was crazy. It was a crazy house. And so that was the grossest house I've ever been in. 
Yeah. Um, have you been in any really gross houses? Certainly nothing to that extent. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess the closest would be in my early 20s when I was in the rave scene. Oh, yeah. And I would, you know, we would go down to Atlanta or Charlotte or wherever and go to a party at a venue. And then mm-hmm. there would always inevitably be like a after party at someone's house. Yeah. And occasionally we would go and someone's house would be like how did people really live here are you sure about this it was usually things like no furniture Mm. like one chair (laughs) one camp chair yeah uh no curtains they would use like cardboard to cover the windows (laughs) to keep the sun out Mm. um no real anything that that would give you the idea that this place was lived in. It just mm. was like an a, empty home. That's that's pretty gross. Not really not. like gross, but just sort of like, okay. Yeah, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. I could see that. Well, we know for sure the grossest house in North Carolina uh, would have to be the one we're about to talk about because yeah. it tops all imaginable grossness. It does. It It takes the gross cake. So the grossest house in North Carolina was definitely 2749 Knob Hill Drive in Clemens, North Carolina. For sure. And if you're not familiar, Clemens, North Carolina is a small village in Forsyth County. It's a little suburb of Winston-Salem. Uh, like I said, 20,000 people, pretty conservative area of the country, I'd say. Conservative, Christian, mm-hmm. close-knit community. And in this little community, there was this little house, and in this house lived a boy named John Lawson, and he lived there with his mother, Cynthia Lawson. And John was not a normal boy. Um, He grew up and got weirder and weirder. By the time he was in high school, people called him Turd Boy. He smelled so bad, I think? Yeah, it's because he smelled. Um, He wasn't just not normal. He... He had been in and out of some facilities yeah. as a preteen teen mm-hmm. for some, some psychological mental health issues. He had also failed some grades. A few times. I think yeah. he was in sixth grade for like three years. Mm-hmm. And he eventually dropped out of high school. And then by 2002, he had changed his name to Pazuzu Algarod. Legally changed Legally his name. changed his name. To Pazuzu Algarod. Now, Pazuzu was the demon from The Exorcist, if you're not familiar. It's some ancient Sumerian demon thing. And uh, he, he from then, went off the deep end. I mean... Like the deepest of deep. Yeah, he, he was very much... So, since this was a conservative Christian area, he was very much rebelling against that whole thing. So, he got very interested in Satanism and Satanic imagery. And, you know, right. he got tattoos on his face. If the town liked... Jesus. Mm-hmm. He was going to like Satan. He was going to like Satan. Mm-hmm. If the town liked people who dressed in, you know, dockers yeah. and button ups, he was going to wear all black mm-hmm. and chains. And then after 9 11 happened, he started wearing like turbans on his head and started like spray painting and writing Arabic symbols on things and start just because it freaked people out. Right. It scared people. And he. It seemed really enjoyed the the thrill mm-hmm. of making people uncomfortable, whether it was through his appearance mm-hmm. or through his actions. But in this small town, that drew some people. It did. It it attracted a few of the younger 
yeah. members of the community who were also kind of seeking some rebellion from yeah. their home lives. I mean, with this sort of conservative, oppressive kind of feeling in this town, there were kids that wanted to rebel against it. And he set up this house where, even though his mother lived there the entire time, mm-hmm. they would party like crazy like almost what i was describing probably way worse i would imagine much worse yeah. they were doing all kinds of drugs and drinking and there was there was girls and he he was very violent he actually liked blood and he like eventually escalated to kind of sacrificing animals drinking blood he liked to smell bad he liked filth mm-hmm. so he wouldn't bathe for a year he yeah he would basically do anything that was the opposite mm-hmm. of social socially acceptable yeah he's like the, the, the most anti-social person you could ever conceive of but he also apparently was to some degree charming in this like magnetic way because he, he did have a pretty solid group of people mm-hmm. young people who would regularly come to his house hang out party get drunk do drugs and trash the place yeah i mean the house was disgusting uh-huh. the Walls were spray painted with Arabic wording and symbols or pentagrams. There was dirt and dust and mold and mildew everywhere. He had probably like a dozen dogs that lived all inside this house. So it smelled. They would you know piss and shit on the floor everywhere. It was filthy, disgusting. And I think he took a pride in the filth. He wanted it to be grosser. He wanted to take everything to an extreme and... I do, there's, I mean, you could, the obvious comparison is Charles Manson to this, like, guy who seems so far out crazy, but has a charm about him because he's so free. There's something about being around somebody that's that uninhibited that is hypnotic in a way and i think it drew right there were essentially no rules in this house you set foot into pazuzu's house it was free yeah you were free to do whatever you wanted to do Mm -hmm. and if that included just horrible behavior yeah it was okay if you wanted to punch a hole in the wall you could punch a hole Mm -hmm. in the wall if you wanted to pee on the carpet you could pee on the carpet you know if you wanted to punch somebody standing next to you for no real good reason you could do it yeah blood everywhere who cared it didn't matter that escalated i think like as the no rules thing tends to do just like we see on 4chan and any other place where there's no rules it declines it slides down and it's into like the darkest of depraved mm -hmm. areas and with this that exact same thing happened he slipped into you know, keeping weapons around, including guns. And once you start messing in that area, violence is pretty close. Mm-hmm. And I think the the first time police really connected him with violence was in 2010. He was convicted of accessory after the fact of the murder of a guy named James Chandler, who was a legally blind uh, young African-American man that lived in the town there. The story's a little bit fuzzy as to how it happened, but apparently Pazuzu and a friend of his picked up this guy, Chandler Mm -hmm. guy, and drove to a bridge. Yeah. And something or other happened. And he got shot. And the guy got shot and died. And Mm -hmm. they were somehow able in court to basically say it was an accident. Mm -hmm. But nobody really, (laughs) at least not in the circle of Pazuzu, really believed that it was much of an accident. Right. And... Little to the police's knowledge, this was not the first time he was involved in a murder. They just didn't know it yet. Right. But his people around him knew. They did. 
The previous murders happened a year before. There was two. He killed a man named Josh Wetzler, who... The, the saddest part of the story, I think, is this man, Josh, was just sort of a hippie dude. I think he was from out west, like Oregon or something. And he was just sort of a regular hippie dude who got arrested for having mushrooms sent to him in the mail. I imagine psilocybin mushrooms that he got sent to him in the yeah, mail. Yeah, because he was arrested when, when Josh, who was arrested, it was like 2007. Yeah. And this guy, since he got arrested for that, got convicted of a felony, his life went to shit, and he ended up kind of having to sell drugs, I think mushrooms and pot, probably, to get right. by. Because, well, the, he also had a girlfriend and mm-hmm. a kid. Yeah. And they had bought a gigantic farm. Mm-hmm. And this was right before the housing market crashed in 2008. Yeah. So they wound up losing the farm. Mm-hmm. Josh, be- being a felon on record, w- couldn't find a regular job to pay for life and so he thought well let me see if i can sell some drugs but of course that tore his relationship apart because the mother of his child did not want that around her kid yeah so now he's getting into worse circles of people and he ends up at the house in clemens somehow he ended up at that house yeah no one really knows how he got there but he did and they put him in the basement and took away all his stuff and basically tortured him for a couple of days until... No, they kept him in that basement for a month. For a month. Mm-hmm. And then they tortured him and then they shot him. I assume Pazuzu shot him. Eight times. Yeah. And they buried him in the backyard. In a very shallow grave. In a shallow grave in and the backyard. And it wasn't just they. It was Pazuzu and a couple of his, what he called, fiancés, yes. which were like his girls, girlfriends. Mm-hmm. That he kept around. Which also adds to the creepiness of this whole thing. Because now it's, it's, it's he's committing murders and then ha- having women cover it, cover it up. Mm-hmm. And this is a pattern with him. He was very abusive to women. I, I noticed this in researching this. It, that he abused his mother. He did. He abused uh, his girlfriends. He abused women habitually. He did. And in the in the light of all the satanic stuff and how just generally evil he was in committing murders, we do also need to remember that he was a misogynist and an abuser of women because that's important. It is. And that was it's another sign of how bad things are with this kid. And yeah, he was messed up. Yeah. And he I mean, he'd even been they they said he filed his teeth down to points. Yeah, there were all kinds of sort of like rumors mm-hmm. and allegations. Uh, like he yes, he filed his teeth down they never bathed that he well we know for sure he had face tattoos there's pictures of him oh, you yeah. can see online mm-hmm. yeah he but he somehow convinced these people these women to cover up this murder with him they were young girls that's why and then around that time maybe a month later he killed another guy no one really knows there's way less info on this guy this man's name was tommy welsh and for all we know he picked him up off the street or he ended up there, somehow he ended up there, and Pazuzu ended up killing him as well and burying him in the backyard. That's right. And they remained there, buried in that backyard from 2009 until 2014. Um, so there was five years where people knew he had done this. Multiple people knew that... And nobody really did anything. That Pazuzu had murdered someone or someones, and that these bodies were in his backyard, and no one did anything about mm-hmm. it. Um, at least not in law enforcement, I mean. And not, um, yeah, and not for a long time. And then when multiple stories came to the police about this, 
they somehow eventually put it all together and decided to go visit the house? Well, they they went they went to the house a few times. Yeah, they had been there a few times. They had even searched the house before uh-huh. and quote didn't find anything. <laughs> yeah, which is insane cuz when you see the inside of this house, there's no way you wouldn't know there was something bad. Yeah, I don't care who you are. You walk into that house, you're going to be like, "Okay, there's a dead person somewhere mm-hmm. for sure." <laughs> like just look at this place. Yeah. He, I mean, yeah. The smell alone. Mm-hmm. He apparently, they said that before he buried Josh in the backyard, he kept him in the basement. He kept the body in the basement covered with cat litter and bleach yeah. to try to reduce the smell. Mm-hmm. But there was no reducing yeah, that smell. that's horrible. Eventually, the cops do discover the bodies, though. That's how we know about this. Yeah, they did finally, you know, locate some bodies in the backyard, and they were like, wow, I guess those five years of mm-hmm. Pazuzu's friends and associates telling us that there were bodies in his yard was true. Yeah. Huh. And so Pazuzu was then arrested and put in jail, and he eventually killed himself in prison. In, in prison, he did. In Raleigh. So... Pazuzu is now dead, but that isn't even remotely the end of the story. That's really just the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. That just tells you the facts of the case. There's a lot more to this. So the reason that we even know about this story is because several months ago, we watched a documentary called The Devil You Know. Yeah, it wasn't because we hung out with Pazuzu. No, thank goodness. Yeah, thank God it wasn't for that. Right. So The Devil You Know is a five-part documentary series that premiered on Viceland in August 2019. The film was written, directed, and produced by Patricia Gillespie with story production by Garfield Miller. And it happens to be one of Vice's highest-rated docuseries ever made. Yeah, it's... (laughs) It's worth the watch. It is really good. It is very good. So the documentary was originally going to be a 90-minute film called American Monster. But when Vice came on board, Gillespie was able to expand the content of the documentary, thus why it became a five-part series, and was able to go so in-depth with learning about the people and the places and the, the events. Yeah, well, Vice has money, and they do some phenomenal work on things. Yeah, yeah. So filming began in late 2014, shortly after the bodies were found Mm -hmm. and Pazuzu was arrested. And in the process of researching the story, Gillespie found the work of Chad Nance, who, along with his partner, Carissa Joins, was covering the story for the Winston-based online news blog called Camel City Dispatch. Chad wrote one piece in particular that really stood out in painting a portrait through words of what Pazuzu was, both as a person and as a symbol of what he represented within the context of this community. The article is still available on the Camel City Dispatch, and it's called John Pazuzu Lawson, The Boogeyman Cometh. I actually went and read it. It's pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, it it's, it's good. So Gillespie saw input from Chad and Carissa since they were both familiar with the story and they lived local to the area. So they could kind of help bridge that divide between outsiders and locals because, you know, this is a small town. Anywhere the small town, it seems like people are a little bit hesitant to sit down and talk to people who aren't from there. Especially if you're talking about a small town newspaper or news blog, a local journalist. I think they're way more likely to see the sides of the story that the the mainstream or larger media might miss. 
And I think that's one thing that you get with uh, Chad Nance is that he's someone who is uh, investigating this from a completely different angle than everyone else is going to. And there's a lot more to the story if you look at it like that. Exactly. And it just so happened that Chad turned out to be a really good storyteller. And so he actually became the voice and the narration of the documentary. Mm -hmm. So when you're watching it, you're seeing him and hearing him tell the story of Pazuzu and this community. And Gillespie also connected with Michael Hewlett from the Winston-Salem Journal, who was covering the story and who was able to help get sealed documents released in his role as a legal affairs journalist. So journalism, and in particular newspapers, were most important in getting the story beyond the sensationalized content out to the world. I think that's amazing. I think it's really cool advice to know to do that. Right, because the story itself made national news. Right, of course. All the talking heads were talking heading about it. Yeah, some satanic dude murdered. Yeah, and it was this sensationalized story, and it was Satan this, and cults, and blood sucking and all this other stuff mm-hmm. but what they failed to really talk about in these in in the the big news agencies was who were these people and how did this happen and that's kind of where this documentary came in and took over yeah it shows some simple flaws too uh something that you know he pointed out that i I hadn't even thought of on the face of it was that this kid, Josh, that got murdered, he got some drugs in the mail and the cops completely ruined his life. Yet Pazuzu ran around with dead bodies in his backyard for five years and people telling the police about it. Uh-huh. And so, like, where's our priorities when it comes to, to drugs? And I, I that stands out to me as one of the reasons that you would only get that from local journalism. Uh, the main big news sources aren't going to talk about that part. They also don't tend to talk about the human side of things as far as who the victims were Mm -hmm. as people, and then also who the people were that were around Pazuzu. How did they get there? How did the community let this happen? How did did the mental health business, the, the infrastructure of mental health in the United States, how was it so bad that this guy was able to live there and do that? For that long. Right, because there were multiple opportunities for someone to intervene. There were tons of the police were there multiple times. Whether well, even going back to childhood, like yeah. teachers. I know. Parents, but people- neighbors, literally so he lived in the suburbs and these houses are stacked on top of each other. He had he shot that guy eight times in his basement and then buried the body in the backyard eventually. And none of the neighbors allegedly saw a thing. Yeah. Really? Well, I think that everyone was scared of him, which was kind of his intent. And that seemed to be a recurring theme. It seemed like that a lot of the failure to intervene and to act basically boiled down to fear And a lot of it was rooted in religion and the belief that the devil is real. Yeah, the opening line of the documentary is these people really believe in Satan. That sets the tone for the fact that their religious beliefs really sets the stage for this to all happen. Set the stage for failure to happen. Right. Failure to intervene and to act. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because... Since they believe in Satan and they think Satan's real, they're very afraid of him. Mm -hmm. And that... 
vulnerability is something that a person like Pazuzu can exploit. If if you have preconceived notions that there's an evil that's out there in the world that can overcome you, that is so terrifying that you might ignore <laughs> a person. And that fear of the devil apparently also permeated into the sheriff's department because I think, so. I think the police were called pretty early on after the murders actually happened, like 2009 or 2010. And someone went to the police or reported to like a hotline that there are bodies in this guy's backyard. And so the Forsyth County Sheriff's department rolls up, they knock on the door Pazuzu answers and they say, hi, we've received a tip that you have bodies in your backyard. Mm -hmm. Do you have bodies in your backyard? And he said, no. And they said, do you mind if we come in and look around? And he said, I don't want you in here. And they said, oh, well, okay, have a good day, sir. And they just left. Yeah. (laughs) And then there was another time when the Forsyth County Sheriff Department came and actually did do a search. They had a search warrant and they went in and searched and they did not stick around. They were boogered. They were scared. They got a look around that house and saw all these symbols and Satan and pentagrams and smells and left and said oh nope there's nothing here they didn't even report the house as being like a a disaster i yeah it's 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 hard to believe that but but it's true Mm -hmm. and i think i think it came from fear and i think it also came from like this weird notion that people should be allowed to just be mentally ill and be out in the world and not taken care of because no one wants to i guess pay for it i mean yeah I can say there was lots of different things he got quote unquote diagnosed with. And you can read a lot of bullshit on the internet. But I know for sure when he went to Dorothea Dix Mental Institution after he got arrested on the uh, Chandler murder where Mm -hmm. he he got convicted of accessory. They did have on the papers that he had agoraphobia, alcohol dependence, alcohol withdrawal, and schizotypal personality disorder. So I can say that he definitely, well, I can't say definitely, but I can say he probably had those things. And if he had those things, those were not things that would have just been able to be dismissed. Like, he he clearly had symptoms before this. They shouldn't have been dismissed right and they were right someone should have said hmm this could be a problem we maybe should keep an eye on this guy yeah what i mean is that those are those are things that he had a pattern in the past They, they, they didn't just come out of nowhere right and so i guess what's most compelling about this documentary which by the way you can watch for yourselves it's on vicetv.com amazon.com and youtube mm-hmm. it's a five part series each part's about 45 minutes long so you can sit down and just binge it all at once or you can spread it out over a few days and it's i would highly recommend it. it's um, fantastic but yeah but so i think what's most compelling about this whole story is just the systematic failure of all these different facets that were there, were in varying degrees made aware of what was going on, and just they continued to fail. They continued to fail to act, fail to intervene, and failed to prevent these very senseless and tragic murders. And then even after the murders were committed, didn't find them, didn't find the bodies for five years. And I, I, you can look at this from a systemic approach, and which I tend to do. And and in that sense, he he's a symptom of something wrong with society. He's not. You can blame him all you want, and just say he was crazy. But none of those diagnoses that I gave really counts as just full ra- raving lunatic. He he wasn't that. He was 
a symptom of something. He was a right. lashing out. It was multiple layers. Uh-huh. So we have like socioeconomic. Exactly. We have the mental health. We have um, the failure of law enforcement. Um, we have the failure of social services. That's what I mean. In some ways, he was a, a failure of our system. And he was a symptom of, of that. Yeah, he was like the product of. And he created a lot of victims and he victimized a lot of people because that's what happens when we have these gaping cracks in, in our right, system. Right, because he wasn't, also, he wasn't the only one to go to prison. Mm-hmm. One, I think two of the girls right. that helped him dispose of the bodies Correct. wound up going to prison. The one being the girl that he was, you know, quote, married to. Amber Birch. Amber Birch. I think she got like something like 39 years. Yeah. Something like that. And these were young girls. And we're mm-hmm. talking like they were at the time, what, like maybe 18, maybe yeah. 18? Yeah, they were young. Children. Yeah. And we let that go. And that that's the importance of mental health. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's it. But we would rather spend our money on police to give felonies to dudes who got some mushrooms in the mail. Yep. We would rather put black men in jail for crimes that they didn't commit on the word of somebody and then let this other guy live like this with bodies in his backyard for years. Yeah. I mean, in neighbors, too. Like, where were all these people right. who could and or should have done something? And why was it the fear of the devil that stopped them from acting? I don't know, but it's, it's, it's kind of scary. It's just sad. Yeah. I think it's really sad all around, but also very fascinating because if you th- think of it in terms of it being systemic and of it being a layered failure, it makes for a really compelling story, which was why we enjoyed the the documentary so much. It's the part of it that I find most interesting. Yes, and it's the part that the the major outlets didn't bother to cover. It's so hard to it's so hard. Yeah, and you know, a lot of the people around him too are now addicted to heroin. The documentary will show that, or mm-hmm. they're yeah, the documentary lots of drug and alcohol it's super problem. fascinating. They sit down and they interview mm-hmm. a slew of people who were friends with or partied with or knew Pazuzu. And their lives have been hurt. Yeah, this has affected all of them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what happens, I think. And I see it I see it as we have all this friction in society. I mean, at the time, there wasn't uh, the quote-unquote polarization that we have now because um, the media loves that right now is to talk about the high polarization. Right. But at the time, especially when he was growing up, uh, there was a housing crash and it was a disaster and the economy really went to shit. And when things like that happen in a system where you have relationships between human beings, the individuals have feelings, but it's like this, this, the system itself has feelings. You can imagine mm-hmm. it that way. And when there is tension and frictions within a system, some individuals will lash out in order to show the entire system that there's something wrong. And you can look at what happened with the protests this last summer as another symptom of a friction system lashing out. Now, they didn't kill as many people, I guess, or they didn't cover themselves in face tattoos and bury people in their backyard, but they did smash windows of businesses and do things that were illegal because the system has tension and friction in it. And usually we don't look at things that way. We would rather just say this evil satanic Yeah, it's person. much easier just to point the finger mm-hmm. at the individual mm-hmm. or in the case of protesters to point at like, oh, it's Antifa's or right. whatever. 
And it's it, it's a lot harder to look at the entire system and say, wait a minute, what is is trying? What is the system trying to say? What is the message here that this mm-hmm. event and these events are trying to tell us? Yeah, and I feel like that always gets left out. I feel like there's a lot of shows and things you can watch. I love them. I love Forensic Files personally. I love a lot of these uh, quote unquote murder porn shows. We both do. We we both like Forensic Files. I, I really do. Um unsolved mysteries Mm -hmm. i love the investigation discovery show called um evil lives here yeah oh yeah oh man that's a good show but i don't personally think that that's the most interesting thing no um it's kind of just like that's why i call it murder for it's kind of just like popcorn brain turn off mode for me it's just interesting but yeah you just watch it you don't really have to think it doesn't teach me what's wrong with society like this case and it doesn't make you think yeah because it's also not a five-part docuseries that's going in depth into people's lives done by local newspapers yeah again and local cheer for the newspapers people (laughs) they can bring you things that that other things aren't gonna other things aren't gonna show you. I mean, if this was a Dr. Phil episode, you would have gotten none of no. of the victim and what he was really like and all that other stuff. You would have just gotten interview with, I don't know, Pazuzu's mom and mm-hmm. how did you let this happen while you were living there? Which is interesting, except for That's only one tiny piece of the that's story. That's such a tiny part of it. Right. There's this bigger world out there. Right. And I think sometimes a gross house a house that's so disgusting, we would call it the grossest house in North Carolina and make clickbait out of it for <laughs> it's you not guys. really clickbait, oh, though. It was a gross house. But to make you guys listen so that we could tell you that the story is much bigger than that. Right. And but I. Th- let's also not forget that we're using past tense here because that's also another part of this failure. Hmm. That house is no longer standing. They did demolish that house. The community, once the bodies were removed, mm-hmm. the house was condemned. Yep. And the house went up for auction. Nobody bought it. And the town tore it down. And the community threw a party and celebrated in the street while the house was being torn down in front of them. Which I find to be just further proof that they don't want to talk about things. Yeah, it was seen as this like symbolic move of like, okay, we can literally bury this mm-hmm. house, bury the things that happened here and move on. Yeah, but you can't. No, because what has happened happened and what's done is done and people's lives have been affected. Yeah, those three people are still dead. There might be more, who knows? And the, the everyone else's lives are still pretty shitty or not maybe not everyone, but a lot of the people in the area's lives are still shitty who were connected to him. Yes. Real shitty. Yep. I think in the end we've settled the question of the grossest house. I think that's definitive. So in researching for this um, episode and gathering thoughts and information, I decided to reach out to Chad Nance. Oh. Who's the the narrator, the voice for the documentary. and The guy who wrote the, the articles mm-hmm. about it. Wow, did, do we have a Carolina Snowflakes exclusive? Um, yeah, kind of, I guess. Woo, woo, exclusive. Yeah, awesome. so I wasn't really sure where, where to find him exactly. I went to the Camel City Dispatch, and I was like, maybe I should try to email him. And then I was like, I wonder if he's on Facebook. <laughs> so I just went and Facebook stalked him and found his profile. Nice. And sent him a message on Facebook without really even knowing if he would get back to me I yeah mean, I w- I i'm nobody yeah. like compared to someone who's been on vice you uh-huh. know 
Um, but I sent him a, a message and asked him some questions. And one of the, the questions that I asked him was, if people tend to miss or overlook anything in particular when they're discussing the Pazuzu Algarod story. Um, and thankfully, he messaged me back. Holy crap, he yeah. messaged you back. <laughs> yeah, Ooh. I was like, what? <laughs> got an exclusive. Okay, awesome. Yeah, what did so, he say? Um, he messaged me back. He answered all my questions. Um, and in that one in particular, he said, in the end, John Pazuzu Lawson was an abuser and exploitive of women. And I think that has been somewhat lost. That's why I wanted to mention it. I wanted yeah. to make sure that was in here. Yeah. And the thing is, is, is that that part of things is in the documentary, but if you're not really like, I don't know, paying attention or making note of it, you can kind of miss it. You could overlook that fact as like the least of the things, but it's not. No, it really isn't. And and then also in when it comes to the, the larger media outlets, the women that were around him often were kind of portrayed like groupies. Yeah. Basically. But when you watch the documentary and you listen to these interviews, it's apparent that Pazuzu was very good at manipulating the people around him. And he was, in a way, magnetic. And I think that he appealed to young, impressionable people. And therefore, like what he was doing was certainly abusive. Yeah. And I think people that are manipulators a lot of times when they get women to follow them it's like a cascade effect they'll find one woman and then they'll use that woman to pick up other women and i got a hint of that in the documentary yeah i did too he had you know these little girlfriends who mm -hmm. had friends and they would bring their friends over and he would invite them for group sex and things like that uh and i've seen that pattern before of of People who are manipulators and abusers. Yeah. So it's there. It may just not be like quite on the nose, mm -hmm. but it's definitely there. And I, I really, I, I'm really glad he said that because it really made me think a lot about it. And I made, and it made me think this is something that, you know, you could overlook with all the just crazy other shit. For sure. And so um, Chad was, Chad's a very nice guy. He answered my questions. Um, one of the other ones that I asked because we enjoyed this documentary so much, I wanted to know like what he's doing now. Yeah, like, I would love to know what he's like, working what, on. Like, what are you working on, man? That's awesome. So he and his partner, Carissa, are currently working on two like documentary projects. One is um, called Life in the Sacrifice Zone. And it's a feature-length documentary that tells the story of the African-American community in southeastern Stokes County, North Carolina, a community bound together by faith and shared struggle against the powers of racism, pollution, and economic marginalization. This community has held together through the decades as they have made unwilling sacrifices for an economic progress they have been left out of. In the building of the 20th century American economic miracle, these folks are the bones in the foundations. They are the working people, the good people, and in America, that is always who pays the price. Yeah. Life in the Sacrifice Zone seeks to tell their story in their words so that they can no longer be ignored by the rest of us who benefit from their suffering. Um, and Chad said that he anticipates that this documentary will be available for streaming by late 2021 That's since awesome. COVID has kind of slowed. Yeah, but I'm looking, I'm very much looking no, forward to No, yeah, it looks really interesting. He sent um, a trailer for, for that one and that one's available on YouTube. We'll include a link to the trailer um, 
in the show description. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening and you want to check it out, you'll be able to see it that way. Yeah, the whole coal ash thing reminds me a bit of the fracking issue as well. Like there's some yeah. there's some commonality in that. And it's very it's very interesting, especially if you're... Coal ash essentially has destroyed these people's drinking water. Yeah. Their well water is ruined. And yeah. no one's doing anything about it. And no one gives a damn. Yeah. Um. So that's the first one. Then the second project project is a documentary series called America's Hometown. And it's about Mount Airy, North Carolina, which as of today is the number two place in America to die from a drug overdose. Wow. That's nuts. That's the town they named Mayberry. Yeah. So, yeah. So the this series the american america's hometown is currently in post production and chad actually graciously let me view a private reel of a small segment of the documentary which unfortunately we can't share because we promise not to um but it looks super interesting and yes as a side note mount airy is nicknamed mayberry as it was the hometown of andy griffith and who was the star of the andy griffith show and it's claimed that Mount Airy was the model used when creating the town of Mayberry. And now it's the second. What's the first? I assume L.A.? I guess. I don't know. That's crazy. I would have to guess L.A. Little Mount Airy, North Carolina, is the number two place in America to die from a drug overdose? That's freaking crazy. I want to see both of these. I think that's got to be a per capita thing. I don't know. That's crazy. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But I definitely want to see both of them. Yeah, I do too. That's awesome. Right up the Snowflake Alley. Yeah. Well, thanks to him for that. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks, Chad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And after all that soapbox preaching and whatnot, uh, we we want to bring some comedy, (laughs) a little lightheartedness to this whole thing. Yeah, a little lightness. So uh, we have some one-star reviews uh, for this week. (laughs) And uh, my first review that I have here is for a satanic Bible. Oh, uh, this satanic Bible costs nine dollars on Amazon, so it's a pretty cheap That's satanic a good Bible. Deal. It's I a, don't really know. Is that a good deal? I've never bought it. I think I think so. It's Bible. for the Sounds satanist. Like a good deal. The satanist without a lot to spend. You know, I mean, Satan on a budget. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you go to church. God's always asking for money, but they, they what they don't say is that Satan also is poor. <laughs> so, um, I have a review here. From Noah Nope, which I don't know if that's a real name, but the review is one star. It said, the book came with a bent front and the stuff inside felt like an edgy teenager wrote it. No. <laughs> which I believe if you read that book is totally true. It does feel like an edgelord wrote it. It's Yeah, try hard. Yeah. And then Tall Paul said, don't read it. If you get this book, it will destroy your entire family. All it does is open a portal to hell in your house. Three people found this helpful. <laughs> Three people found this helpful. <laughs> I found that to be hilarious. Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that it opened a portal. Yeah, he did spell the word destroy wrong, but we'll, oh, we'll well. forgive him for that. That's it's all right. It's the internet. Dis- yeah. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I have a couple too. Awesome. So the first one is for a Baphomet inverted pinnacle silver finish pewter goat head pendant necklace. Oh, nice. So you got <laughs> I got to have my awesome pewter inverted goat yeah, head, goat head necklace. necklace. Yes. Shit, yeah. 12.99. Oh, wow. So it costs more than the Satanic Bible. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> pricey. This is for a Satanist with a little bit more to spend. Yeah. He wants some bling. Yeah. So this is uh from Bradley Manners. Mhm. And Bradley says, wouldn't recommend. <laughs> Summoned Satan. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> wouldn't recommend. Summoned Satan. <laughs> Thanks, Bradley. Thanks. Thank you. And then my second one, in keeping with the theme of a gross house, 
I thought, what does a gross house need? Gross house needs a Dupre steam cleaner, multi-purpose, heavy-duty steamer for floors, cars, and home. Nice. <laughs> and this is $189.78. Okay, wow, yeah. For the steam cleaner. Well, that house was really dirty, so. Probably needed a bigger one than this. Yeah, I would imagine. Really, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, this is a review from Plasma Jam. Plasma Jam says, mine arrived defective. One could literally spray the steam right on one's palm. I tried to kill a spider, <laughs> and it was just sitting there, enjoying a free sauna. <laughs> Five minutes of getting steamed, and the spider just walked away. Have already called customer support. We'll get a call back on Monday, I hope. The steamer has nice features and is easy to handle, but my wife is disappointed. This does not sit well with me. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't sit well with them. And also, what, what are you killing spiders with Why are with you the steaming cleaning? spiders, you jerk? That's a random thing to do? Yeah. Wow. Well, our boy Pazuzu that we were talking about this entire episode, he got his name from The Exorcist. Yeah. So um, I found a review of The Exorcist. Uh, it's a DVD you could buy for $9. <laughs> um, it was... Uh, a review from MJV and the movies, and the word the letters are capitalized for the and movie, so it's a proper noun. So I imagine it's some guy who does this because it says one star, worst movie of all time. What? Yeah, and then it says The Exorcist, the saddest and most disturbingly bad movie of all time, is the classic story of a young girl Reagan, whom through a squeegee board becomes possessed by Satan. First of all, what's a squeegee board? And second of all. If it's a classic story, how is it a bad movie? Okay. Did he say squeegee? Yeah, it does say squeegee board. Okay. And then it says this film is supposedly based on a true story about a young boy whom in 1949 became possessed. That is unconfirmed. Okay. Then it says my review and then a colon. And so, yeah, that wasn't the review. That I don't wasn't know what even that the was. review. That was just the preface. I know. MJV in the movies has got, <laughs> no. not got his shit together. Oh. But now it says my review and then a colon. Okay. And then in quotation marks. So I guess he's quoting himself. It's really crazy. But it says, I hate this movie with a passion because it's so evil. And only a devil worshiper would love this movie and want to watch it again and again. The ultimate evil you can find in this world. The scary thing about it is is that the movie is based on a true story. Now, don't get me wrong. This movie is very scary, but it's just a gross-out devil movie. No one in this whole world should see something so terrible. It is bad, plain and simple. And I mean bad as in it isn't a good movie for anyone to see. So all of you people who say this is a great movie, you just make evil seem so good. End quote, MJV in the movies. What? It's is yeah. wrong with that person. I don't know. I think it's funny because they're like, don't get me wrong. It is very scary. Uh-huh. But it's also evil. It's too evil to watch. And anyone who does is a Satan worshiper. Yeah. I just also find it funny that it's the type of person who would put their own review who would, after the words, yeah, my review. who's quoting themselves in their own review. And then put quotes around it and then put the little hyphen and then MJV in the movies at the what end. What a weirdo. <laughs> yeah, I that know. That guy's a weird person. I have to think that might be an English as a second language person because that's a weird ass formatting. Maybe. I mean, oh. And the last review I have is for, um, I was thinking along the same lines of you of cleaning the house. So yeah. <laughs> this is for a Big D odor control fogger, mountain air fragrance. Five Wait, fra fragrance? Yeah, mountain air fragrance. It's a, it's a Big D odor control. 
Okay. <laughs> oh, for, is that to con- never mind? Go yes. Ahead. Big D odor control, and it's a it's a twelve pack, so you get twelve little spray cans. You get twelve big D's. Yeah, twelve big D's exactly. And it says Jay says one star doesn't work. Doesn't, Does, doesn't eliminate odors, only masks them for several hours. So you get a several hours. Smells like extremely cheap cologne. Gagged on the smell for days. So, so he gagged on his 12 big Ds. Yeah, for days. For he was gagging days. on big Ds. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And <laughs> that that's a thing. That one kind of wrote itself. It he does. wrote it, but then it wrote itself. I know. And <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you <laughs> I'm glad you got the joke there. So and also it's, it's ironic to me that he was like the smell was horrible. And then he, this other thing just smelled horrible for days. So it was like probably worse. Mm. And Sandra H. agrees. She says, oh, one star only mask doesn't eliminate. Wow. Super strong, bad cologne smell that doesn't eliminate odors. It only masks the odor. And with the very bad man cologne scent. Yeah. Which is the last part I like of that sentence with a very bad man the cologne. Bad scent. man cologne. Yeah, it's like this big D bad man cologne <laughs> this scent. Bad man cologne scent. <laughs> what? I think all Good those job. were pretty great. And that does it for this week's episode of the Carolina Snowflakes podcast. If you like what you heard, you can find our website at carolinasnowflakes.com. You can visit our awesome dope facebook at facebook.com forward slash carolina snowflakes and we would love to hear from you if you liked this episode and you want to hear more about serial killers in the carolinas maybe or something along these lines Mm -hmm. let us know because i'm really not sure if people want to hear that or not maybe maybe not either way send us an email you can reach us at carolina snowflakes at gmail.com gmail.com Thanks for listening. Bye.